If you're a guest with us, we are walking through the book of Revelation and here in chapter 5, the conclusion of the chapter and the conclusion of this mini-series, four messages here in these two chapters, a conclusion of this mini-series on confidence. Revelation 4 and 5, join with me as we read. Revelation 4.1 After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven a throne was set. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and thunder. Burning before the throne were seven fiery torches which are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne was something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal. In the middle and around the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy Holy, holy Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne. Worship the one who lives forever and ever. Cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, 
you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And because of your will, they exist and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying! Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and Gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and have redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven on earth under the earth, on the sea, everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. It's difficult to find a strand of Christian doctrine not represented here. Here, Revelation 4 and 5, we have a composite 
a nexus, a hub of so much of the Bible. This morning as we conclude our four-part mini-series on these two chapters, I hope to think about them in toto and understand not just their significance in the Bible, but here in Revelation as well. If you've got your Bible open to chapter 5, just jump ahead to chapter 11 for a moment. Verses 16 through 18 help us to gather up the significance of these chapters for Revelation and what this means. Revelation eleven, sixteen. another reference to this heavenly throne room. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We thank you, Lord our God, the Almighty who was, or who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great. The time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. It's these ideas of God's justice that surface here. God's justice to the saints who were oppressed. This is the conclusion of the seventh trumpet, and this is surfacing here. We'll see this next week at the end of the the fifth seal in chapter 6, when there's a cry, How long, O Lord, until you avenge the blood that was spilled? Last week, Pastor Jared mentioned this theme of justice, and that is the the need, practically, and the supply, practically, is this scene in heaven. This is your God. He reigns. Jesus crucified, risen, and He will take that scroll and unfold how God will vindicate His people and discipline the nation's those who come against the church and the spiritual realm and the defeat of the devil all unfolding in Revelation as we progress. We'll come back to these themes over and over as we progress in the book, but understand it now. The victory of Jesus, the one who was slaughtered and was victorious, is a victory for us and against those who would oppose us including the devil and his defeat. These themes also allow us to reach back to chapters 2 and 3 for a moment. Do you remember the concluding refrain in each of those letters? To the victor, the one who overcomes. To the victor, to the victor, to the victor. Well, all of those themes anticipate Jesus' victory here in chapter 4. He has conquered. It could be translated to the conqueror, to the conqueror, to the conqueror. Jesus conquered to the victor, to the victor, to the victor. Jesus was victorious. That is why we can endure. That's why we can be confident.
I want to notice with you the end of chapter 5 and notice with you the coronation ceremony that we are witnessing. What we are recognizing here is the coronation of Jesus as king. This is the ceremony where he is coronated and in heaven recognized as king of the earth. He will, from the one seated on the throne in heaven, receive this scroll because his death and resurrection has demonstrated on earth that he is the king and now he's being coronated in that way in heaven. Yes, you have been faithful and now the coronation comes and celebration of Jesus. And then we will notice in the last couple of verses that he is praised in exactly the same way that the Father is, demonstrating his deity. And the glory of these chapters will provide us an opportunity to reflect toward the end of our time. And I want to gather up these two chapters in seven themes for you and think about these seven themes for our Christian lives together. Notice with me in verse 11, this coronation ceremony that is taking place. We read it. Now just notice the specifics. There's a voice of many angels, verse 11, around the throne, and of the living creatures and the elders. And notice the quantity Countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. If we have thousands of thousands, there's this escalating number that John says. It's almost as if I can't count it, but if I were grouping by thousands, you'd think that would be one way to get a specific quantity of a large number. But even a large denomination, if you will, like thousands, that's, I, I can't count the thousands of thousands. So large. But notice verse 12, they all say the same thing. I, they, they said with a loud voice. And notice what they say at the coronation ceremony. The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy. He is worthy. And notice the kingdom language of verse 12. Power, riches, Wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. He's worthy to receive power. Well, that's what a king has, is power. Wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory. He, he's worthy. He has demonstrated that in his death and resurrection. He has demonstrated his faithfulness to God in accomplishing all that he was assigned to do in his divine mission to earth. And now is his kingdom. But notice verse 12, as a king, he's still noted as a lamb who was slaughtered. And this, as Pastor Jared mentioned last week, this is where we have this great irony in Revelation 5. A king, one worthy of glory, Slaughtered? Slaughtered as the basis of this? Someone crucified as the basis of exaltation? And that is the exact framework of Christian theology, isn't it? This is not just here. It's in so many places. John's Gospel, 1 Peter, the end of chapter 2. 
Jesus entrusted himself to the one who was faithful, and he found God faithful in raising him up, even to the point of death. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating Jesus as King. We are celebrating the kingdom of God that has come in Him, in His death, in His resurrection, in His exaltation, the slaughtered Lamb. If you would grab those elements and open up the cellophane on top and grab hold of the cracker, we are mindful that in this ordinance, we are recognizing the truthfulness of God's Word and the faithfulness of God's Son. He, the slaughtered lamb, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the great king prefigured by David, reality in Jesus. Him we celebrate because he laid down his life for us. He was laid down and he rose up and is exalted at God's right hand. Let's eat in remembrance of Christ. In verse 9, the song that was sung, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood. If you'll open up the foil. The juice that we see reminds us of Jesus' blood, symbolizes for us the new covenant blood, and we drink in remembrance of him. Join me. Greg Beale states, the hymns that conclude Revelation 5 emphasize Jesus' deity more than most other passages of the New Testament, addressing the Lamb in the same way as God is addressed. The simple fact that worship is given to the Lamb here demonstrates His deity, since John implies elsewhere that worship is due only to God. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered, and he is recognized as king. But this throng that worships continues to grow. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say. Just pause there for a moment. 
Notice this crowd. It's thousands of thousands, verse 11, and then verse 13. It's every creature, every creature now singing and expressing praise to God. When we think about crowds in our day, there's a sense in which we should be concerned as well as rejoice. Think just three weeks ago, who had heard of the abbreviation SVB? Today, we all know this is Silicon Valley Bank. This is the bank that was, that is no longer. Why? Because in some ways there's financial instability in this institution, and, and then there's a crowd that recognizes that. Many stories that are coming out of this fall of this bank, but one of them is that in short order, a few people understood that their investments were not as secure as they had hoped and the holdings of this bank and so they took to social media to advertise that and let it be known and there's a crowd sourcing digitally and so many people use their devices to move money electronically and suddenly there's an old-fashioned run on the bank via modern technology and this bank collapses and the effect of a crowd is going to be a part of this story that continues. So much so Al Mohler in his briefing this last week, President of Southern Seminary, Daily News Analysis notes the madness of crowds at times. Crowds can be dangerous. Sometimes you avoid them. But sometimes crowds, crowds can be great. Lived in Kansas City now for over 20 years visited Kansas City a couple of times before moving here, and one of those times was when I was living in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it, it was uh, 1996, came to Kansas City for a, an event here, a Christian event at Arrowhead Stadium, and it was packed. 76,000 at that time was capacity, and we were all singing together, holy, 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 at night on a clear spring night and it was deafeningly loud crowds can be a problem crowds can be great and this crowd that we are reading about in verse 11 is the crowd of eternity notice again i heard every creature in heaven on earth under the on the sea every blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. All of creation recognizing Jesus' faithfulness as the Lamb King, the slaughtered one who laid down his life and ascended into heaven after his resurrection, the one who defeated the devil, the one who is fully man and fully God. That's the Lamb. That's your representative in heaven. That's the glory of Christianity. That the Son of God in time took up human flesh and ascended to heaven where He approached the one on 
and he receives worship just as the Father does. Brian Tabb writes the idea this way. The apocalypse does not present the Lamb as a rival to God, but as a sharer in God's glory and identity and as the executor of God's previously inscrutable plan. The only proper response to the apocalypse's dramatic presentation of Jesus' joyous worship and steadfast loyalty fueled by confident hope in His return. This is the point. It's not just abstract worship. This is confidence because it is this God who reigns. It is not the emperor. It is not the world powers. This is our God and He reigns. And one who had a nature like ours has approached Him for us. These two chapters are magnificent. And I want to summarize them now in seven themes that I think will be helpful for our Christian lives. Until the Lord returns, or we go to be with Him. I want to draw up seven themes. And if there were any other number, it would probably be inappropriate, right? Here. To summarize these two chapters and send you out into the rest of your Christian experience with these. If it's the case that these two chapters, as Pastor Jared mentioned last week, started in Genesis 3 and hit Romans 8 as well, can bring together so much of the Bible, as I've noted today, as well as their import for Revelation, these seven themes then could be foundational for you. If you're not a Christian, this, this is what Christianity is. Listen to these seven ideas that I'm going to state here. This is Christianity. This is, this is it in its, its normal sense. And, and I invite you to it. Number one, God's word is true. Number one, God's word is true. What we see here in these two chapters, and even beginning in Revelation 4, with God on His throne, these creatures surrounding the throne, these creatures reflect creatures in Ezekiel 1. The whole scene reflects Isaiah 6. It's difficult to move through Revelation 4 and 5, even just a few verses, without reaching back and reaching back and reaching back. They're tying together so much. We should understand from Revelation 4 and 5 that God's word is true. Worship is not an isolated experience. It's reality based upon God's word. It's true. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory, Isaiah heard. And we hear echoes of that here. These creatures around the throne resembling Ezekiel 1, and now they're here. This is God's Word coming to fulfillment. It's truth. It's true. God's Word is true, and so it is important for us to 
grab the whole counsel of God in our day. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, notes the importance of grasping the whole of God's Word in our day because our contemporary situation, it's not ancient Rome. It's not the situation that the first hearers were in. But some of the pressures are the same. The pressures to compromise, the pressures toward idolatry, the pressures toward apostasy. In the ancient world, they were with military, religious pressures. Today, it's often media, social pressures of all kinds, and the need to rely on the faithfulness of God's Word. Truman says this, one of the temptations at a time of tremendous flux and change is to fixate upon the immediate challenges to the Christian faith. And there are many. Social pressures, political compromise. Yet there's a danger here. We can be so, we can become so preoccupied with specific threats that we neglect the important fact that Christian truth is not a set of isolated and unconnected claims, but rather stands as a coherent whole. The church's teaching on gender, marriage, sex, is a function of her teaching on what it means to be a human. The doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, consummation are important foundations for addressing the specific challenges of our time. Modern identity politics are functions of deeper notions of selfhood. If that's true, then we need first to know what the Christian view of the self is in order to address them. What we need is a comprehensive biblical worldview. God's word is true. And it's this story and telling this story to ourselves that will fuel us. God's word is true. Second, God rules eternally. Over and over in these chapters, John notes the eternality of God and his word. God is not bound by time. God is not bound by any succession of events. Therefore, God is not bound or determined by any nation, its rising leaders, or falling leaders. God is not bound by any laws of any nation, nor will He ever be. He is not in any way determined by political or cultural forces. He rules eternity and in eternity. He's, his rule is eternal, and this is not new. We could look at psalm after psalm. The king, God is king. God stands as king at the flood. God is the one who is king. He rules. His rule is eternal. Alexander Stewart puts the idea this way. The throne room vision of Revelation 4 and 5 provides the theological foundation and center for all the visions to come. No matter what terrifying things lie ahead, we can move forward convinced and assured that God is on His throne. 
In addition, we have confidence that Jesus' death and resurrection gained a cosmic victory over evil. And Jesus, now ruling and reigning at God's right hand in heaven, is able to put God's plan into action. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are ready for a confidence study as we progress in Revelation. Because it's this God who rules. It is this God who is carrying on history ultimately to vindicate the faithful and condemn the wicked. Every physical transformation that we read about, every act that we see of the shaking of heavens and earth, earthquakes and all the rest are meant to embolden us, not make us afraid. Our God rules. And third, this leads us to His power as sustainer of creation. Number three, God is creator and sustainer. In John's revelation that, that he experiences, that he writes, we are going to see over and over again that it is God who alters the physical universe in some way to, to show his judgments, to show that he is going to vindicate his people, to show that he is the ruler. Creation, all of creation is under his authority. This will frame all the scenes to come. God rules over creation and uses it as he would in judgment. No cataclysm is outside of his purview. He is sovereign over creation. He created and he sustains. This is a theme throughout these two chapters and will be throughout Revelation. Number four. Jesus provides forgiveness and atonement for sin. Jesus provides forgiveness and atonement for sin. And this may be why these two chapters are so special to us in, in moments of crisis. I've tried to note that these two chapters encapsulate for us a view of God's rule and authority for the macro of history, that we could have confidence. But in the micro seasons of life, when we sin, when we recognize our own guilt, when we look in the mirror and we repent of what we have done, these chapters provide great hope. By His blood He redeemed us. He was slaughtered. These chapters emphasize that Jesus forgives that atonement is real. And it's here where we can understand the macro and the micro. In his death and resurrection, Jesus not only defeated the devil, the one having the power of death, who held captives all their lives, those who were afraid of death, as Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, but also defeated sin for you and your sin personally, and forgave your sin personally. Every time we think of the cosmic Christ who rules our enemies, that is the same Christ who forgave your sins that no one will ever know about. If you think there's some sin that God just can't forgive you of, you might as well think there's some enemy 
out of his control. There's just no way I can be forgiven or in pride say, I'm going to hold on to this sin. I want it. We might as well say, I'll take you on all on my own, Satan, and you'll lose. The Jesus who rules history, the Jesus who approached the one on the throne to grab that scroll that will unfold cataclysm is the same Jesus who forgives every one of your sins. There is no difference in him. Fourth, you have access to God. This is a fundamental teaching of Christianity. You have access to God. You don't have to, to, to change some situation of your life to approach God. You don't have to say some mantra of 50 syllables just right. You don't have to be in some physical position. You can approach God now, every moment, regardless of what's going on in your life, because your access to God is determined by the slaughtered lamb who's the king. It's never determined by your feelings. It is never determined by the cultural situation. It is always determined by Him. You can approach God. And number six, this is objectified in the sequence of Revelation 4 and 5. Don't underestimate verse 8. Each one of these elders had gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There in heaven, your prayers, mine for justice, God, do right. Vindicate your people who have given themselves to you. Let me be one of them. Destroy your enemies, God. Vindicate your name against those who defame you. Give us confidence in you. Your prayers are there. We will see in Revelation that your prayers are a part of your participation in God's unfolding plan. Our prayers are a part of our endurance. They show that we are enduring faithfully and trusting Him. Our prayers are objective realia of our confidence in God despite the world rejecting, ignoring, and opposing him. Number seven, the community of the saints. What we see of this throng in Revelation 5 and the growing numbers anticipates the faithful ones, we who are clothed together in white, we who are a, a community we have flags now hung in our sanctuary representing the countries of missionaries that, that we have, that we, that we support in, in the United States as well. From Croatia and Malaysia, Indonesia, the United States, Ethiopia, these connections. And we must remember every time we gather, we are not alone. There are billions of people on earth. We don't know how many Christians there are, perhaps hundreds of millions, perhaps billions, and we gather living beings now to worship Him. 
And we are not alone. There is no such thing as a private experience of God. There is an experience that we have, but that is common with others because we all approach Him this same way, and He is the one through whom we have access. With all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. This is our God. Christianity is not just a private experience religion. Understand that. It is, it is, it is that, but it's much more. You do have a private experience, but that experience is common. Hundreds of millions and perhaps billions over time that you will join with. To be a believer is to be a part of a community. God's word is true. God rules in eternity. He is the creator and sustainer. You have forgiveness and atonement through him, the one who rules. You have access to God you have assurance of answered prayer, and you have a community that you belong to. Do you pray with me? Lord, work out in our lives the macro and micro of these chapters until you return or take us home. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.